light this candle as a sign of love shown in the coming light of Christ. During the season of Advent, we are waiting for the Christ child, God's great sign of love for the world, and we are waiting until that day when Christ shall come again. We remember the promises of the prophet Isaiah that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom, like the crocus it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. In the midst of all the busyness that calls our attention in other directions, we remember the prophecy that the Lord will give you a sign. Look, says the prophet, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, meaning God is with us.
infinity, coming among us, being baptized alongside us, you showed again your intention for our common life. And so we offer to you our highest praise and adoration through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace and peace and to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary, as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the Lord's name. And because it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we have gathered, that means that our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives ever attached to it. Christ welcomes all, and so do we in his name. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, if you would kindly sign the friendship pad. You'll find that on your pew. You may sign it and send it down and back again. We'd also be grateful for those of you worshiping online if you would sign our virtual friendship pad that we might note that you are with us as well. I'd like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service, which will take place in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to the right of the pulpit, down a very short hallway. There you will find that our deacons have prepared light refreshments, but most importantly, you will find the opportunity for us to engage with one another deeply in our common life. Speaking of our common life, I'd like to highlight a few things from the rather robust announcements section of your bulletin. It takes a full sheet of paper this week because there's a lot going on in our community. I'd like to highlight that there is a Christmas party, a, a sort of a three-group Christmas party that you'll see listed this afternoon. If you identify as FPCQ or TNT or Gen X, we'd love for you to be a part of that. Uh, it's not too late to RSVP, I don't believe. We, there's, there's always plenty of food. We'd love to have anyone that wants to come, and Larry Slagle would love to hear from you, and we can make sure you have directions on how to reach that. You will see on the flip side of that same page that the, the Giving Tree is up and ready to go in Old Buttonwood Hall. If you are looking for a way to share from your abundance to those who stand in need of abundance, I hope you'll take part in the giving tree. You'll find that in the back of Old Buttonwood Hall. I'd like to note as well that it's that time of year when we receive dedications for the greenery and flowers for the, the beautification of the sanctuary for our Christmas Eve services. And I want to make a note about that for you. Through the years, we have strive to find ways that we can reduce our plastic waste here at the church. And one of the ways we do that is by using a mix of live flowers and silk flowers as part of our decoration of the sanctuary. Uh, that, again, that's to, just to reduce the, the uh, plastic waste that is generated by all those poinsettias. So if you request a dedication, we'd love for you to do it. We want you to take your flower home with you after the service that you attend for Christmas Eve services so that we can know that it is going to a good home where it will be enjoyed, and we are glad that that will take place. Um, there are a number of other opportunities. I commend them to you at your leisure. I'd like to particularly extend a warm welcome to our guest preacher today, the Reverend Dr. Tom Long. Tom and I go a long way back, more years I suspect than either of us care to recall at this point. Tom is, as I described him earlier to our first service, Tom is a scholar of the church. His work has served the church for generations, both in his biblical commentaries, his work in teaching the art of preaching, his work in teaching what constitutes a Christian funeral. Tom has thought to be a pragmatic theologian for the good of the church. He's also a very fine preacher and a dear friend. We are glad to have you here today, Tom. Thank you. With all of these things noted or commended to your later attention, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
Beloved in Christ, the invitation to confession is an invitation to walk in newness of life, to confess to God and to one another the truth that we all stand in need of God's healing touch to our brokenness, God's forgiveness for our sin. We do not need ever to be afraid of confession. Our God already knows us and already loves us. So let us come to God in candor, first in unison and then in silence. Let us pray. Holy God, you have set before us a way of abundant life, creating us as your people, marked by your name, to live your way. Yet given the fullness of your creation, we turn away from generosity and squander and hoard resources, offered a life that is truly human, marked by genuine relationships of mutuality, we turn inward rather than live with openness and authenticity. Called to be peacemakers, we turn from loving kindness, despairing of the possibility that even we might be repairers of the breach. Nevertheless, you are a God of infinite grace, calling us to repent, to turn back to you, and find forgiveness and renewal. So we confess our sin, relying as we always do on your unfailing mercies, through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Beloved in Christ, Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
first lesson is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter, the first 11 verses. Listen for the word of God to us this day. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Here ends the first reading. Our second reading, our epistle lesson, comes to us from Second Peter. The third chapter, verses 8 through 15, continue to listen for the word of God. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, <coughs> and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some, some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is, do that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you be in leading lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without a spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, so also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. May God bless to our hearing and our understanding this reading of God's holy word. The Gospel lesson for this second Sunday in Advent is from the first chapter of Mark. These are the first words in Mark's Gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
and people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You know, sometimes you can tell a whole lot about an entire book or play simply by looking at the first sentence or two. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. There you have it, the essence of Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Or how about this? Who's there? Nay, answer me. Stand. Unfold yourself. The whole plot of Hamlet in a nutshell. Sometimes you can tell a lot about a book or a play from the first few words, and the same is true of the Gospel of Mark. It begins, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and there it is. The whole of the Gospel of Mark in just a few words. Every word in that phrase is pregnant with meaning. The beginning. In Greek, it's the same word in the Greek Old Testament of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark is saying, in Jesus Christ, God is recreating the world. That's why we have these eight-sided baptismal fonts, by the way. Because God created the world in one, two, three, four, five, six days, rested on the seventh day, and on the eighth day, God recreated the world in Jesus Christ. The beginning of the good news, that's a military term. When the Romans won a big battle on the battlefield, they'd send a messenger back to the city to announce the victory. Good news, good news. Well, Jesus won no military battle, but according to Mark, he took on the powers of sin and death on the cross and defeated them. Good news, good news. The good news about Jesus, who has two titles, Messiah and Son of God, they're really incompatible titles, but before the Gospel of Mark is done, they become complementary. Jesus is the Messiah. That's the strong term. Messiah, that's the one we've been waiting for. The one who will break into life and history and restore the fortunes of God's people and will establish a kingdom of justice and peace forever. Jesus is the Messiah. Christopher Morris, who taught theology for many years at Union Seminary in New York City, wrote an interesting little book called The Difference Heaven Makes. The Difference Heaven Makes. And in that book, he looked at every single time in the New Testament that the word heaven appears. The bread of heaven. uh, The heavenly angels. Every single time that the word heaven appears, And when he had put it all together, 
he came to the conclusion that in the New Testament, heaven is mostly not somewhere people go when they die. In the New Testament, it's the place from which God comes to us. God speaks from heaven. God acts from heaven. Heaven is really a symbol of the life of God, and God is adventing like waves lapping onto a beach, adventing into our history and life. At the end of the book, Morse says, it's the role of a disciple to be on hand for that which is at hand, but not in hand. To be on hand for the breaking into our lives of Jesus the Messiah, which is at hand, but not under our control not able to be contained in any of our institutions. The late Don Jewell, who was a marvelous New Testament scholar, was a specialist on the Gospel of Mark. He was also a very brave man because in addition to teaching adult seminary students, he also was the advisor for his junior high youth group in his little Lutheran congregation where he worshiped. One Sunday afternoon, he was meeting with the junior high youth group, and there was one kid who was there who, by his body language, indicated he'd rather be anywhere else. He'd been drugged there by his mama. He did not want to be a part of this, and so he turned his chair away from the group and gazed out the window. Don Jewell said, I'm just going to have to ignore him and deal with the ones who are paying attention. So he said to them, we're studying the Gospel of Mark, and today we're going to look at the day that Jesus was baptized. Do you see what it says here? It said that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were ripped apart. The word in Greek is schizo, he said, like schizophrenic, a violent ripping apart. And what it means is there's a hole in heaven now, and we can get to God. We can get to God. The kid who didn't want to be there shifted in his seat. He turned toward Don and said, that's not what it means. Oh, yeah? Well, what does it mean? It doesn't mean that we can get to God. It means that God can get to us. And the world is a dangerous place. Don said, this junior high kid knew more about the gospel of Mark than I did, because Jesus the Messiah is breaking into our life and our history. But he's also son of God. Son of God is a complicated term coming from the Psalms and Isaiah, the servant songs, but basically it means the beloved one of God who shows his obedience through suffering. He bears our grief and carries our sorrows, and with his wounds we are healed. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is dying on the cross. Just as he dies, a Roman centurion looks up at him, and Mark says, when the centurion saw the way that he died, suffering, bleeding, a condemned criminal in pain, he said, that is the Son of God. But some scholars think there's some irony in it, that it's a double entendre, that what the centurion actually said was, yes, that's the Son of God, but also, that is the Son of God? This bleeding Dying, suffering one, is the Son of God? The beginning of the good news about Jesus, who is both Messiah and Son of God, which means that his power is hidden in suffering, and the world cannot see it. Many years ago, 
my wife and I went to the movie theater in Princeton, New Jersey, and we saw the old movie Places in the Heart. You've probably seen it. If you haven't, you should rent it. It's uh, really fun. Uh, I won't spoil it for you, but suffice it to say that it ends with a very powerful and unexpected communion scene. Uh, it's in a little church in Texas, but it's so powerful and unexpected. I'm here to testify that I had a religious experience in a movie theater watching a Hollywood movie. <laughs> My wife did too, and it was so powerful we had a hard time talking about it on the way home. But when I got home, on the mail table, there was the latest issue of the New Yorker magazine. It had just come that day. And I hadn't read anything in it yet, but I had flipped through it, and I noticed that there was a review of Places in the Heart by the New Yorker's crusty movie critic, Pauline Kael. Pauline Kael was a sharp, in some ways, acid-tongued reviewer, and generally speaking, if she liked a movie, I didn't. And if I liked a movie, she didn't. But I thought even Pauline Kael will be brought to her knees by places in the heart. I read the review. She hated the movie. Especially the communion scene, which she thought was sentimental schlock. Now, how come I have a religious experience in a scene where Pauline Kael finds only sentimental schlock because I'm a better person than Pauline Kael. <laughs> no, it's because I've been with you to the Lord's table. I've had my vision given a sharpness and a perception. I, I have been trained by coming in worship to you to the table to expect to see the power and goodness of God in the broken body and the shed blood. That's partly what worship is all about, you know. It's shaping our religious imagination where we can do what the world cannot do, and that is to see the power of God in that which hides it. Every now and then, the New York Times will publish on its opinion page a religious op-ed piece, uh, usually a Christian one. Uh, and as soon as they do, you can count on the comments that are written by the readers to be like vultures pouncing on roadkill on the highway. They will say something like, uh, how dare the New York Times publish this rubbish? It's insulting to my intelligence. Well, the other day they published a piece by Esau Macaulay, an African-American professor of religion, a Christian. And he was talking about the power of the black church for him and his family. And in his piece, he said, my grandmother just bought an acre of land in Alabama on the property that was once the plantation where my own family were enslaved. She didn't pay much for it, he said, only $500 because this land was considered worthless. It was the burial ground for the people who were enslaved. But I see it, he said, as a sign of hope because now the land that they toiled in misery and servitude and were buried in is owned by one of their descendants. And if the promise of God is true that one day there will be a resurrection of the dead, they will be raised free on land that once held them in captivity. It was beautiful. But of course, in came the vultures. And one person said, this is wishful thinking. I'm tired of it being in the New York Times. There is not one shred of evidence, not one shred of evidence that there is a supernatural being, much less one involved in our lives. Not one shred of evidence. Well, you know, he's right. There's not one shred of evidence. If evidence is God lying down on a Petri dish 
so that the scientists can gather around with microscopes and gas chromatographs and prove the existence of God, there's not one shred of evidence. Because Jesus is Messiah and Son of God. And his presence in the world is hidden, except to those whose vision has been trained in worship and praise and in confession. I moved to, to Maryland about seven years ago when I retired from Atlanta, where I'd been teaching at Emory University. The church that my wife and I worshiped in in Atlanta has an overnight shelter. We have one for women, we have one for families, women and children, and we also have an overnight shelter for men. One February night, a cold night, I volunteered to be in the men's shelter, and I knew I couldn't handle it all by myself. So I asked a friend of mine if he would help me. Um, he's a good Southern Baptist layperson, and he's embarrassed about having a minister as a friend. <laughs> in fact, he will uh, sometimes begin a conversation with me by saying, Well, I'm no theologian, but... Well, anyway, we went to our on that night in February and we got the sandwiches out and the hot tea and the coffee and when all was ready we opened the doors and in they came. They took their sandwiches and coffee and we had no cots in, in those days, only cardboard pallets and they made nests for themselves on the floor and settled in for the night. I said to my friend, um, one of us has to stay up all night um, do you want the first shift, or do you want me to take the first shift? He said, looking around the room, while they're still awake, I think I'd like to get to know them, uh, maybe hear some of their stories. Let me take the first shift. I said, okay, wake me up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we'll switch. 2 o'clock in the morning, he shook me awake. Even though the room was dark, his face was almost glowing. I said, what is it? I'm no theologian, he said. But I think Jesus Christ is out there. That's good news. Jesus Christ, who is Messiah and Son of God. His power hidden as he works among those who suffer. I read recently an essay by a Czechoslovakian Roman Catholic priest named Tomas Halik. He had taken a vacation from his parish in Prague and was spending it in India. One Sunday morning, he was in Madras, and he went to Mass. Well, the priest recognized him as a Roman Catholic priest, and so they invited him to participate in the service. They asked him if he would read the Gospel lesson. He did. It was that famous and familiar story about doubting Thomas. Ah, the rest of you can believe if you want to, but I won't unless I uh, see it for myself. After he read that uh, passage, he said, I sat down convinced that it meant what I always thought it meant, that Jesus was providing some evidence. Look at my wounds, touch my wounds, touch my side for Thomas so that he could move from doubt to faith. Little did I know, he said, that before that day was over, I would have an experience that would revolutionize my understanding of that story and of the resurrection of Jesus itself. That afternoon, a, a local priest took me on a tour of Madras. We went to the, the very place where the Apostle Thomas, according to the legend, was crucified in Madras. And then we went to a Roman Catholic orphanage. Oh, row upon row, endless corridors of cribs that looked like poultry pens of starving children whose black bodies were swollen, whose desperate eyes looked out, whose hands reached out toward me. I was overcome emotionally, physically, morally. I, I was ashamed of having anything in life in the face of this kind of suffering. I wanted to run away as fast as I could, he said. But then Jesus Christ spoke to me. Jesus Christ 
spoke to me. He said, it came from welling up inside the very words I had read that morning. Touch the wounds, Thomas. Touch the wounds. I then understood these children were not just suffering, they were the wounds of Christ. All of the pain in the world is the wounds of Christ. And God has not abandoned them. But Jesus, the Messiah, hidden from the eyes of the world, the suffering Son of God, is at work to redeem them. And we must join him if we can say, my Lord and my God. So keep your eyes open this Advent. Good news. The Messiah has broken through our lives and history. He's out there at work among the suffering. Amen. As we continue to witness 
Christ breaking into the world and into our lives, let us affirm our faith in him using these words from the second Helvetic Confession. Come, let us confess together what we believe. Christ is true God. We further believe and teach that the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, was predestined or foreordained from eternity by the Father to be the Savior of the world. And we believe that he was born not only when he assumed flesh of the Virgin Mary, and not only before the foundation of the world was laid, but by the Father before all eternity in an inexpressible manner. For Isaiah said, Who can tell his generation? And Micah says, His origin is from of old, from ancient days. And John said in the Gospel, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Therefore, with respect to his divinity, the Son is co-equal and consubstantial with the Father, true God, not only in name or by adoption or by any merit, but in substance and nature. As the Apostle John has often said, this is the true God and eternal life. In a world that is filled with pain and violence, competition and domination and greed, we are called to prepare a different way, the way of hope, the way of peace and justice, the way that is filled with revolutionary joy and unquenchable love. In ways that are both large and small, let us prepare for the alternative way of God. At this time, we are invited to bring our gifts together to a transformed world. Come, let us build together the life that we dream for one another. Our tithes and offerings will now be received.
everlasting and holy God, may you bless these gifts in your divine possibility. May you bless us as we support one another with our profound and ordinary needs, build within our society communities of care, tear down the systems of exploitation that would deny us our value and our worth, move within this church to prepare your alternative way in the world. We pray in the name of your child, Jesus, who arrives in vulnerability and not domination. Amen. Let us join again together in prayer. Gracious God, Emmanuel, God who is with us, author of our hope and love, we thank you that you did not enter this world to keep things the same way they were before, to uphold the status quo, to affirm the oppressive systems that threaten to swallow us whole. Instead, O oh God, you came to prepare a new way, a way of vulnerability and tenderness, a way of solidarity and care, a way of unmerited mercy and unqualified acceptance. We thank you for the ways that you remind us time and time again that we do not have to walk through this life alone, that we do not have to shoulder the pains and responsibilities of our existence by ourselves. We thank you for the people and places that give us reason to hope, who show us that we are loved, that fill us with joy and reveal the possibility of peace. We ask that your love might move through us this day, past the harmful rubble and clutter that we so tightly cling to, moving aside what is not ours to hold, carving out a new way in our lives with your gentle grace. May your secure presence fill the broad pits of our fears. May it level our mountains of discouragement and despair. May it smooth out our bitterness and resentment and self-importance. Clear out everything in our hearts that stands in the way of love. Prepare a new way, O oh God, in the wilderness of our lives. Remembering this day, your son, who opted to be born in a manger rather than a palace, who preferred a diaper over a crown, we remember also those who are residing in uncertain regions in our world. We especially remember the children who did not choose to be born in warring nations, who continue to be treated as though they are forgettable, as though they are disposable. We pray for the children who are huddled in fear and hunger in Gaza. We pray for the families who cry out for the return of their kidnapped loved ones in Israel. We pray for the young people, hardly adults, who are forced to defend their homes in Ukraine. We pray for the nearly seven million people displaced by the fighting in Congo. Come, O oh come, Emmanuel, and prepare a new path of fullness and flourishing in our world. We ask you to raise up your prophets to set our path straight let us open ourselves up to the agony of empathy once more for the sake of your people who continue to cry out in pain this day. Come, O come, Emmanuel. Be with us and offer us your strength for your path-building work in the world. Be with us even now as we pray the prayer your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
the good news of Jesus Christ has come close to us, as close as our hand is to our face. So go from this place in great joy and deep peace, and most of all in confidence that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit are with you all.